Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. It's Jen Taylor, and today I'm here with Steph St. Laurent, and now pronounce it correctly. It's St. Laurent, or as French Canadians would say, St. Laurent. Uh, it goes back to uh, the easiest way to connect to it is uh, thinking about uh, Yves St. Laurent, a designer, but no royalties coming my way. Damn, that's a shame. And you're in mm-hmm. Vancouver, British Columbia. I am. I've been through B- BC. I drove from, well, I drove from Vermont cross country. And then I think I was in Wyoming and we drove up to Alaska. So I went through all of that space. Awesome. There. Yeah, it was beautiful great. Country. It's beautiful. You have a couple things going on right now and I'm going to let you jump in. You have a website and a clothing line and you've been a strength and conditioning coach for 20 years. So jump in and tell us what's happening right now in your world. Okay, well, okay, Jen. Well, the origin story really to kind of make it all make sense is um, I spent a life in servitude. Uh, I always believed in paying it forward and helping other people get to their aspired goals and dreams. And so I spent 20 years honing and crafting um, a career in strength and conditioning where I worked with everything from professional athletes, varsity athletes, university, preparing would-be police officers and firefighters and uh, playing a large part in in, in their success and everything in between. So so that's what I did for 20 years, and those were real formative years for me. And I've always been in sales in one capacity or another. I think we're always – you know, ultimately selling ourselves or selling our brand. And I recently decided to finally take a, that, that final leap, uh, an idea that had been incubating in my mind for several years. Uh, started in my mid-20s where I knew I wanted to be um, a motivational speaker, an executive or a life mentor, you know, kind of what I'm branded as now, especially if you see my LinkedIn profile and what it's kind of sharing there. And finally taking that leap of faith in what on the cusp is. And The reason why I branded it as such, Jen, is that I always felt like I was on the cusp of achieving some great things, but I let a lot of my own fears or uh, lack of self-worth get in the way or even things that would creep up from what, you know, my my, my childhood, um, you know, the kind of cloud, it it, it kept over my head. And then uh, some things that happened recently in the last six months, uh, six months really was the lid came off the pot and I said, let's do this. Let's be all in Texas Hold'em and just get out there with on the cusp and take a lot of that life experience. I mean, I'm a big fan of academia. I think, you know, it's great to, you know, to, to learn and study and to draw from books, but I think what you learn on the street real time with real people is really where the education is at. Proud to say that I've, I've walked the streets uh, in more than one capacity or another and brought on the cusp to the table. And now that's not without having had some great support from, you know, a lot of my clients uh, that I've, you know, had the privilege to work with uh, throughout the years or even in my previous gig as a national uh, sales director and leading a team and the network that I built there was kind of, it was kind of time, Jen, if that makes any sense. It does. On, and on the cusp, you say the nudge you've been dying for. <laughs> Tell yeah. me about that tagline. Um, you know, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, I've always, you know, we're going to get into the more personal side of my story and, and it was the nudge that really was that real life nudge that I needed. And, and thank goodness for that. And I always, when I reflected on 
and I've worked with thousands of people uh, in my career, and I've always had to bring the very best version of myself to my, my clientele because they were paying for that. They were investing in um, a personality that could make them believe they could achieve their goals, whether it be a professional athlete coming back broken from a really bad season and me having to put them back together again before we could even hit the gym hard and assure and secure a spot on, you know, on the team again for the next season. So, you know, I've always had to uh, bring my best all the time and which, which I appreciate that quality in me, but not without a lot of my own personal struggle struggles. So I was always that nudge people were dying for. And we, we kind of were, we're there. We're on the cusp. We're almost there. We look to make that step, but, we just don't do it for various reasons. And we ultimately get in the way of our own success. We have all kinds of people who tell us you can do it and whatnot. And you have all that belief in, um, in, in you from other parties, but yet what gets in the way? And I love the human condition. So I'm kind of like that nudge people have been dying for. And that's extrapolating from my own personal struggles and experience. So I'm like, here it is, full Monty. Let's have at it. Kind of sort of what we're doing now. Right. My kids say the new, the new expression for the teenagers is full send. <laughs> full send. You are like full. Yeah. I, I'm just sharing with you my knowledge. I don't know what it means. Tell me about the clothing brand. Cause I cyber stalked you, of course, cause that's my due diligence, but I loved what I saw and I couldn't buy anything. So tell me about it. Right now, as we're recording, I couldn't buy anything. But you have this streetwear, the name. Tell me all about it. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And it's, it's been fun. This has been a passion project um, that started about six months ago. And we're going to kind of tie in and layer some of the stuff that led to um, me launching this brand. And it's very recent. I, um, it's kind of the yin to the yang of what on the cusp is. It's a little bit more of a raw and unbridled version of who I am. And when I came up with the idea, I was actually in Boston, Massachusetts with my wife and she saw that I would have been struggling in, in the role that I, um, recently left. And I just looked at her and said, man, you know what? I go, there's a lot of hoodly daddle out there. There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of haters and naysayers that just look to tear good people down. And that has not been what I've always tried to bring to life's table with the people who I touched anyway. I mean, something that I, I think that I did a good job of, but it just hit me. And, and it started with me watching an episode of Seinfeld's uh, Netflix series, Comedians Riding in Cars. And I'm not sure if you're familiar oh, with that. Oh, yes. Okay, I've seen it. Okay. So in this one episode, which inspired me was Seinfeld picking up Steve Harvey. I think we all know he's the host of Family Feud and a bunch of other great things. Uh, great personality. And he picks him up in a 1956 Chevelle, which was a, his favorite, Steve Harvey's favorite car. And at the end of the show, to kind of fast forward, um, Seinfeld is sitting on Steve Harvey's talk show. And Steve Harvey says to Jerry, he says, Jerry, he goes, you know, in the African-American community, we have these great sayings. We have these great time savers. It'd be like me saying there's a party happening Friday and Jen and them are going. That just saves a whole lot of time of having me to list the who's who that's going to go to the party with Jen. Everybody's going that is, is worth mentioning. And 
in the same breath, Jerry turns to Steve and he says, yeah, and when um, your people are upset with these people, it's fuck all y'all. And I sat there. <laughs> okay. I, I sat there with a shit-eating grin on my face, and I kind of thought to myself, you know what, that's kind of how I feel some days when people just don't want to be a part of the solution and insist on being a part of the problem. And I'm like, fuck all y'all. So I started with getting a hat done up at Liz with just their generic um, in-house um, lettering. And I just was, hey, this is a great idea. So I started socializing it. I opened up uh, an Instagram account. Now, my youngest daughter was near the end of her last year of high school, last year. And then she saw the account created and she was like, dad, what's this FI account? Because I, I didn't want to throw it out there as fuck all y'all. Because people would say, here's just another jerk trying to be an asshole. And I'm like, well, that's actually not the mantra. And if people look at the bio, it's really about good vibes only. It's really about trying to make a difference in the positive column of life for, for people who want it and, and deserve it. So I turned to my wife and I said, oh, shit, what? how am I going to, I said, all, although it would sell really well in high school, <laughs> I'm like, how do <laughs> yeah. I position this properly? So, so Jen, when I, I, I look to have conversations with people who may not get it or to kind of be careful with it, I say it stands for, um, for all your awesomeness. That's the uh, PG version. To, we're not going to PG here. <laughs> <laughs> well, not on this show. And uh, no, I, I appreciate the guardrails being wide here. So, um, so yeah, so that's where it kind of just started. And as I started sharing it, which was uh, the idea was one conversation at a time, one hat at a time. I started with hats because they were easy to do. I could customize them uh, through lids and they've been great. And I've had friends, VP, CEOs, executives, all, you know, I mean, I gave them out for free because it was just shit. It was just fun. And people connected to the message quickly. And yeah. I got great feedback where there'd be scenarios where, you know, friends of mine who are execs and they sit on all day long uh, conference calls and they're like, oh my God, I'm on mute. And all I can think of is fuck all y'all. You guys just can't get together mm-hmm. and make it work. So just recently I started spending or investing more money into it because the demand was there and I wanted to take it to the next level. And that's why you don't see a landing page yet. You don't see a website or a Shopify store yet. That's all in the background working. Um, in fact, I was at my embroiderer and screener yesterday putting in an order for uh, you know, a bunch of skateboarders. So you know what, if you're not having fun, what's the point? Oh, I agree. And I know I, in our pregame, I asked you where you were from and I thought it was New England. And now it makes sense why, because I just saw, it says Wicked Smot. I'm from Rhode Island. And so I saw that and I'm like, oh my God, he's like my brother from another mother. This guy probably lived down the street. We're a year apart because you're 48, correct? Yeah. I'm 49. So like, we probably grew up right next door to each other. And that's where I got the New England thing, the Wicked Smot thing. So there you go. I love it because you're right. I mean, how many, how many meetings have we been in where we're like, oh my gosh, this is just such a colossal waste of my time. I'd rather be scrolling social media and pretending to work. You know, when you're at meetings or boardroom, all of that stuff, it's crazy. But there is a flip side of that, which is that you're productive and doing well and happy and positive. You say, you talk a lot about good vibes, 
uh, getting rid of haters and naysayers or not getting rid of them, just, I, you know, not recognizing that in your life. I had always heard that, you know, you've arrived when the haters start coming. So I remember my first like massive hate email and I was like, yes, gotten there. <laughs> I've arrived. I don't know where, but you talk a lot about good vibes and superpowers and positive mantras. So you also have the Hawaii hang loose sign yeah. in there. Like you're Vancouver, New England, Hawaii. You're all over the Seinfeld. You're bringing in a lot of different stuff into this brand. Yes. And I like where you're going with this. And back to your point around maybe we're, you know, siblings from another mother somehow. I mean, yeah. that could be totally possible. Uh, the Wicked <laughs> Smart, I kind of took away. I saw a t-shirt in Boston um, at Harvard. Oh, sorry. We were walking around and I saw this kiosk and it said MIT Wicked Smart. And I'm like, that's Wicked Smart. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it, why not? I like it. It makes sense. And then yeah. you have to be Wicked Smart about your life. That's why I enjoyed that piece because of who you invite into your life, who you let on your train. People are going to come on your train for a period of time and then they're going to leave and that's great. But you know what? You got to be careful. Uh, I think as we age, we get a little bit smarter as to where we um, allot our time and who we give the keys to our city to. So um, the hang loose is just, you know, I mean, my wife and I love the Hawaiian islands and there's a certain feel and culture there that I res that resonates with me. And it's a universal symbol. I go, well, you know what? Part of branding is people connecting and relating to something. And that was why I'm like, hey, you know what? I really like to hang loose, kind of like, you know, just be normal, chill, and yeah. no drama. Uh, I lived in Hawaii for a year and a half, and they are very like, just chill out and go slow. And it's very difficult to come from a fast-paced mentality into a like it's cool that we're all on the freeway for hours. It's no big deal. Just chill out about it. So I thought, yeah, as I'm putting this stuff together, I'm like, God, you're all over the world here. This is it's awesome. I love it. Hopefully by the time that this launches or soon after we can, we'll have the show notes so that people can purchase because it's a, it's a great message. The clothing line is a great message. It also ties Thank in you. completely like the nudge you're dying for. It's sort of that reminder. Thank you. Appreciate Tell me about that. your, your daughter has a tattoo on her arm. Yeah. My Tell oldest me. daughter. Yeah. Tell me about that. So, oh boy, this, uh, my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, she's in her third year of university. Um, not that because, I mean, we'll probably chat about my youngest one too, Taylor, but they're, they're both beautiful individuals, not because they're mine, <laughs> because of what they, they bring to the world stage. But uh, I think it was three years ago, that Mackenzie reached out to me and said she had already a, a couple of tattoos. And I mean, I've got tattoos. Mm -hmm. I got full sleeves. I got full chest pieces, you know, the whole thing. So I'm not one to say, Hey, uh, well, I, I don't think you should get one. <laughs> so um, she reached out to me and I remember getting the text and she said, could you in your handwriting write the word resilience? I'd like to get it tattooed on my wrist. And I was like, holy shit sticks. I go, it's not a problem that you want to get a tattoo, but you want it in my handwriting. I was like, uh, I haven't written cursive in probably 25 years. So if you imagine this, 
before I even responded, I broke out a bunch of blank paper and I started writing the word resilience in cursive, probably not short of 500 times until I settled on one that was like, I think that might be the one. So I asked her first, I said, well, what's your inspiration for this? And, you know, you do get compliments every once in a while from your children. They're, they're, they're few and far between. Few the one they have <laughs> They're epic moments, and this was one of those moments for me as a dad. And I asked her, I said, well, what's the inspiration? She said, well, I've seen what you've gone through in your life. And, you know, she, every, every kid, and especially when they start high school and going through high school, I think that's one time in their life where it's the most challenging. And she said, you just always were this great example of never giving up and always having this attitude of can do and not it, you transforming or puking on your shit on anybody else. So I remember tearing up and thinking, feeling very validated because as parents, we certainly don't get it right all the time. And uh, I said, wow, that that's, that's cool. So I took a picture of it. I sent it to her and I said, this is for life. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it works for you. And then sure enough, I think it was within the next couple of days that she, uh, she got a tattooed on her wrist. So I, that'll, that'll always be a, a special moment for me. That's actually, I'm glad that I asked now. I was, I wasn't, I had no idea what the backstory was, but you know, we have to find, I'm all upside down, but anyway, yeah. same yeah. thing with the tattoos. You have to find something, I think, uh, and Faya is what I'm, this was the tie-in that I was thinking, that it's uh, one of those mantras, those things that can help remind you, keep you back on track, like refocus you. And I figured resilience was very similar to her. It's a great example of where you want to go and who you want to be and what you your attitude should be. So I'm glad I asked now. So we're going to go back in time and you can take me back to wherever, where there's always a pre-story before the struggle, you know? So Absolutely. jump back and let me know Vancouver. What was that like? What was Vancouver like? Yeah, and growing up and family and take me back to what was happening. Okay, so uh, good, good that you asked that question, Jen. I'll, I'll connect the dots. So I've been in Vancouver just over 10 years now and that has everything to do with uh, my wife's career. So what you do for love. Um, so I left a very established uh, brand that I was very proud of. I had my own uh, athletic facility in Ottawa, uh, branded Hybrid Strong. So if you want to cyber uh, um, stalk me some more, just look at my YouTube channel. What I, what I used to do in a previous lifetime was pretty heavy into social media in uh, helping people out with uh, various, you know, online 30-day challenges. So left that, came here, had to reinvent myself, which ties in nicely to what on the cusp is again evolving and reinventing myself and I'm 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 a big fan of that I'm not afraid to do that and that has everything to do with your, your question and and the, the struggles I had gone through in my early life in order to to, to to get here and to kind of thrust ourselves back you said something that was very interesting about therapy um, you said something that I compartmentalized, um, and you, you know, about asking you, what would you say to yourself? We can get that to that a little bit later, but I had a therapist who was really great at that. 
Now, to, to give it some color and some landscape is um, I grew up in a household of turmoil, uh, a very dark environment where I had to play land mine hopscotch with the old man. And in, instead of, I have an older brother, and instead of having, uh, well, what is a normal childhood, right? And that's something I always reflect on. What is a normal childhood? Uh, but instead of having a childhood that, you know, took the context of being able to go out and just play marbles and be on your bike and hang out with your friends and just, you know, come home for dinner and have fun, it, it certainly didn't resemble that by any means. It, it was more one of, well, my, my, my dad was a clinical pathological liar. And uh, anybody who's listened to that has had a similar experience. Um, you can make your own assertions and, and, and kind of get some ideas around what that is like on the daily. And the daily for me was it's kind of a day in the life of of Steph as a as a child was. Um, Dad was also an alcoholic. He was Air Force, and he was always home before we were. I did everything to avoid the house. That's why athletics became a big part of who I was and, and today and why I had become a strength and conditioning coach. It was a cathartic for me, was an outlet for me um, emotionally and to, and to challenge myself physically as to what Steph could achieve and do. And so you'd come through the door of school. His lazy boy was always back to the door. Um, he was probably already, you know, five or six uh, um, that blue was his brand of beer. He's probably five or six, you know, already. And there was never an acknowledgement coming in the door. His back was turned. Nothing was said. It was straight to the bedroom where I closed my door and either made attempts to try and do some homework, <laughs> which usually didn't pan out too well. I usually just listened to music and doodled. And uh, fortunate for me, I had a, a great memory and I managed to skate through high school with a low seventies average without doing, I had one binder again for all my courses. So imagine what that was like. Um, we would uh, hear in a very stern voice dinner, be like dinner. And I'd be like, Hey, that's, that's enticing. So my brother and I would emerge from our bedroom. We come to the dinner table and, um, the other imagery there is imagine a man with the blackest eyes and behind that veil was nothing but um, hate, um, anger, and it, it was misplaced to the rest of us, including my mother. I mean, we were the quintessential emotional punching bags. And nobody spoke at the table. We ate as fast as we could so we could get it over with and, you know, uh, crawl back to our rooms and, and, and hide. And so that was part of the, the vibe in, in our household on the daily. And uh, I'll never forget report card day. Now, here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a man who couldn't care. I'm going to drop an F-bomb. Couldn't give a fuck about you as a, as a person, but he certainly knew when report card day was. And that was an opportunity for him to just do what he did best, which is to make you feel absolutely worthless and that to remind you that you're not going to amount to much. You're not going to go anywhere in life and you're just a piece of shit. 
So, you know, come in the door, you'd have your report card, and he'd be sitting there waiting. He wouldn't be in his lazy boy for a change. I was like, good for you. You migrated from your lazy boy to the kitchen table. Like, wow, thanks for the effort. And uh, put the report card down on the table and then have to uh, endure a couple hours of just berating and, you know, all the stuff that came with, uh, you know, an individual who uh, looked to do anything but tear you down. So that was... Uh, a mainstay and, and a norm, and it was an environment of being oppressed. Now, Jen, the other thing here too that's important to note is, and, it, and I'm very random in the kind of the way that I share the story because you know it's kind of like opening up a, a Pandora's box, which I've done many times, and I'm very good with the subject, and I've, I've uh, been an example to many people who have struggled with similar um, environments or you know challenges in their lives. But I. Um, <laughs> I uh, never uh, can forget just the way he would look at us. I think he was never, he wasn't physically abusive. It was all, it was all mental and psychological abuse. And almost, well, every night there would be an all-out fight between my mother and my father. Um, I'd say probably 75% of the time it uh, would get physical. I would come to, to, to fisticuffs. The fortunate thing is that my dad wasn't a strong physical man, but my mother could hold her own. Uh, my brother and I, as we got older, we just kind of sat in a room and we just listened and waited uh, for that, um, let's say, turning point where we knew it was coming physical and if there was something that we would step in to make sure that, you know, mom didn't get hurt in the crossfire. But there were a few occasions I remember hearing some noise and bang, whatever, and it would be you know, my dad holding his mouth because, you know, my, my mom kind of took care of herself, which was nice to see. But then you'd be like, okay, uh, nothing to see here. You retreat to your room and uh, survive another storm. Now, I had digestive problems for my whole childhood into my early, early adulthood. I don't remember a single day without having the runs. And I remember sharing that with my, my, my first therapist. And uh, she was like, well, I think it had a lot to do with the stress and that's where you kept it all. I'm like, yeah, no shit. Um, <laughs> you know, no pun intended there. So, and then there would be every now, I think this was the hardest thing for me. Now I can't speak for, you know, uh, my brother or my mother. This is about my, my, my experience. Um, one of the things that my father did very well, uh, the uh, kind of like psychological warfare front, was he would either he'd take turns, it would be my brother or, or myself, and every time we came home, we'd be like, flip a coin, it's like, who's it going to be today? And uh, we had to always play mental chess. We always had to kind of stay ahead of the old man. It was always trying to see what the game was and, and you know instead of just worrying about having fun as a kid it was just always this mental mental game now well there's some good stuff that came of that but talk about that down the road the one thing he would do is would accuse you of something you didn't do and i'll use an example because that examples are important and you start off by going no I, no that was me or i i didn't do that and then I'd be like yeah you did and i'd be like Nope. And this, this happened a lot. So there used to be Diet Coke. That's the one thing I remember about being in the fridge. There wasn't much in the fridge, Jen, in our house, but let me tell you, there was always Diet Coke. 
And Diet Coke was not for us. It wasn't for, for my brother and I. We were not allowed to have them. It was strictly for, for my mom and my dad. And this one instance was I came home. He was already home, like I, I said. He was always home before us. And he goes, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay, fuck, here we go. You're like, yeah. And this is my early teens. And he's like, you had the last Diet Coke. I'm like, no, I, I didn't. I don't drink the stuff. I know I'm not allowed to touch it. So why, why, why would I even go there? Now, now when you're getting older, you become a little bit braver, right? Because you're kind of like, you know, if you want to, you know, uh, metaphorically punch me in the mouth, go for it. Because I really don't care. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to just be that anyway. And you go back and forth. And to a point, to the point where you would acquiesce and say, yeah, yeah, I did take the last diet of Coke and I, I drank it. So then what came from that was I would get, you know, the punishment for it and then I would get grounded for something I didn't do. And that happened all the time. Um, the, the, uh, the lies were many and they were difficult to understand why as a child you were treated as such. You know, this is your, your dad. I think the one thing that really stood out for me that had, I think the greatest was, uh, it was kind of like a, a real spirit to, to, to my spirit was when we moved. Now, my dad was Air Force, like I mentioned, and every four years we looked at, you know, moving. And um, we were moving from Toronto to Greenwood, Nova Scotia, the Air Force Base in Greenwood, Nova Scotia. And hockey was our thing. My brother and I, we lived for hockey, we played hockey, and we excelled at hockey. And, you know, we, we were always team leaders. I was a captain quite often, and I was proud of that. And that actually, people saw leadership in me outside of what, you know, happened in the home. And the moving truck was in the driveway. We had gotten to, we took a road trip, we drove, we got to, to the house, and then we were expecting the moving truck, you know, the next day, and sure it is, there it is, the 18-wheeler. And then all I could care about was seeing my hockey, my hockey equipment bag come off the truck. So stuff's coming off, stuff's coming off. I see my brother, we had matching bags. It was this royal blue, white canvas strapped hockey bag. And sure enough, my dad liked to write in Sharpie all over everything. If he could write my name on my back in Sharpie, he would have done so as well. So my brother's bag comes off, everything comes off the truck. My hockey bag is nowhere to be seen. And I'm like, what's this? What's going on? So, of course, I'm not going to go ask my dad because I was fearful of talking to him on any front. And so I asked my mom. I said, Mom, like, Paul's bag uh, came off the truck. Where, where, where's mine? I, I, don't, I don't understand. I don't get it. So, of course, my mom, you know, puts herself in the line of fire and goes and asks my dad where Steph's wondering his bag didn't come off. So my dad played it out as if the um, moving company lost my bag. And he went to the ends of the earth and big drama, accusing the moving company. And I remember uh, standing there and witnessing it all and putting on the big show. And then they're like, it's not on our chip. It's not here. It's not here. We have all the items, stickers, and how it works anyway. So sometime later, my mom comes to me and lets me know that because my dad was owing some money and that was another thing another problem in, 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 in our home that he sold my equipment for some, some quick cash so I didn't get to play hockey that year Ken and um, 
so you start to believe that you're you're worthless you know that you're you know you're a piece of crap and um and that's that that's probably one of the biggest blows for me now how how is your relationship with your older brother and with your mom through this at least briefly were they good decent um now okay let's go there um my, my brother and i haven't talked in over 10 years we made an attempt to rekindle things uh, about 10 years ago and that went over like a lead balloon we couldn't be more polarized jen and that's fine just because your blood doesn't mean it's meant to work yet and that's another thing i tell people all the time you know this whole blood is thicker than water and you know because your family you just gotta put up with stuff and you gotta tell it and like bull roar man that's a load of horse bucky right there yep like if i'm not if i can't this is not somebody i would be friends with and having my life on the daily just because you're my brother then that's okay that's not a problem so i always uh i made many attempts at trying to make that work and tying my mom into this one of the um, challenges were uh, along the way over the years were it, it, almost this photoshopped idea of what we grew up with it's almost like not wanting to acknowledge just how bad it was and i struggled with that i'm like okay well maybe i'm the one who's like dreamt this all up and maybe i'm the one who uh has got it all wrong but i'm pretty sure i don't uh, we've all witnessed a lot of the same stuff at the same time and you know i would try to have that conversation with my mom and we always struggle to get to uh, um, a, a stronger ground in our relationship. It would be very superficial. It would be the classic three phone calls a year, birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day. That's it. And only up until two years ago, she had finally come out, hadn't traveled in 35 years and came out to visit with uh, my wife and daughters. And that meant the world to me. And we still, to this day, um, you know, have challenges around where you can and cannot go in the conversation. One of the things over the years that were difficult for me in our phone calls, in our five-minute brief phone calls, because there really wasn't much substance to talk about, there wasn't much to catch up on. You know, she'd always ask me, you know, how's your morale? And I'm like, why, why do you keep asking me that? My morale, like as if there's something wrong with me. Like, like I'm, I'm I'm good. How about you get to know me a little bit? And you know, so um, you, the relationship with 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 my mother is just kind of very superficial. We can't we can't kind of go there, and that that brings it to some of the time I, I, I spent in, in, in therapy. So I don't know if you kind of want to go there to that very um, very uh let's say defining moment in my life and i guess mm -hmm. it'll probably kind of pull it all in and that was uh i was 17 years old uh like i just, just finished sharing that i came from such an environment and that i felt very alone isolated abandoned was a word that came up in my therapy and feeling very oppressed, wrought with all kinds of powerful emotions and not having a voice. I was afraid of my own shadow. I didn't have the 
the ability, the, the know-how to express myself, which I think everybody really needs to find that voice. I think to have a healthy and uh, productive life, you need to be able to have and find that voice, even if it shakes as they say. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have any type of relationship with a, a spouse, colleague, with your children, um, you know, and strive to do it in a healthy way. Certainly, we're imperfect beings. You know, I'm a big fan of the human condition. But uh, at 17 years old, I decided to attempt suicide. And I used to work at a quickie convenience store. So think of it like a 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. And I think I was premeditating my suicide attempt. And when I was working there, I was taking a whole bunch of different packets of contact seed, there was some gravel, some other cold medicines, and I had a, a slew of these packages. And I put them in my locker at school. And I think if anybody who's listening to this and who's intimate with it, suicide on, on one level or another, um, might appreciate that it's a moment. It, it's, it's a moment in where you decide this is it. And it is a, I've never been blackout drunk in my life, happy to say, but this was my blackout moment where nothing else uh, was in my in, in my view and I was in uh, math class I remember sitting beside Shannon Ross uh, was her name and uh, I just sat there and I asked to go to the bathroom to be excused I went to my locker I pulled up all these packets I must have swallowed um, well, maybe didn't count but you know, easily maybe 60 pills I went to the fountain chugged them all back took my last drink of water and I remember standing there in front of the fountain and it was kind of carved out into the wall old school white porcelain fountain and just thought to myself, what the fuck did you just do like oh shit this is on this is this is this is real and like and then in the same breath in my head i went no oh, let's see what happens so i went back to my math class and I started to, to feel the change in my physiology. I started to feel my heartbeat slow down. I started to really feel it. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, shit. This, you did this at school. Like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And I think it's ultimately just this sensational cry for help. Uh, I was always known as the, you know, jovial and joking, kind of like the, uh, the clown who puts on the makeup to make other people laugh so they don't feel the pain that they live with every day. You know, that's the analogy that you know, kind of sticks with me. And uh, it was time to go to um, lunch, which you know, we had our cafeteria tables in the cafeteria. And I was really feeling the effects of all these drugs. And I had this black uh, textured bind, uh, binder. These were actually uh, binders that my dad got from the Air Force. So, yeah, thank that. Um, so I laid my head down on my binder because start, I was starting to feel really bad. And I wasn't my usual pocket of just interacting and engaging and having fun. So, so Jan, I, 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 I thought to myself, you are the biggest asshole on the planet. You are attempting suicide and you very well may die in front of your friends and fuck them up forever. So I, um, Found it in me, picked myself up. I walked to across the hall from the cafeteria where there was a guy's bathroom. I 
walked into the stall. I sat down and I closed the stall, locked it, and I started to ball. I started to cry. And I knew that, hey, if this is it, good. And I'm going to be weightless. I'm going to be pain-free. I, I don't have to think about this at all anymore. And um, being here talking to you today, I can say, fortunately, for a good friend of mine, Patrick, he noticed that there was something off with me. And then a few minutes, he came knocking on the bathroom stall and said, hey, like, what's up? What's going on? It was very unusual in my character. And I just, I was bawling, crying, and I was very incoherent. And I'm like, leave me alone, leave me alone. And I uh, didn't have any of that. But he, he kicked the door open, and he saw that I was like, something, like, something wasn't right. And I could barely stand. And I had to get over the feelings of embarrassment, and not only for the uh, attempted suicide, but the fact that it was such a spectacle in my school, because many people saw what, what, what happened, and that was him carrying me and dragging me to the office, the admin office, principal's office, where he brought me into my guidance counselor's office, um, Mr. Venn, great guy. I had no idea where he is today, but then went through the conversation and realized that I had uh, taken a lot of medication that I was overdosing. So rushed to the hospital and uh, where I'm greeted with, you know, medical staff and I'm given this great milkshake of charcoal, this <laughs> charcoal toxin. Oh, and... I remember the uh, nurse saying, you need to drink this, drink it all, and this is what you can expect to happen, which is pretty much everything coming out of both ends. Uh, and sure enough, she, uh, she, she didn't sell me that wrong bill of goods. Uh, within a few moments, it was handling the purging the system of uh, this, this medication. And it, it, it catapulted me into... Um, a state or a time in my life where I really had to go, wow, what is, what, what's next? And the hospital psychologist came around, she came to my bedside, had a good chat with me. And this is where the uh, children's hospital of Eastern Ontario, because it was still a minor at the time. And she asked yeah. if I would be interested in extending my stay. And I go, well, what does that entail exactly? You know, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm feeling uh, as vulnerable as I could ever be. And these are strangers. Nobody really cared for me other than the way friends care for you, you know, on the surface during the day and coaches throughout your life. But I mean, like, to really care about you as a, as a, as a human being. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, let's do this. Um, I, I, I have nothing to lose. I'm rock bottom. And... I stayed uh, a full seven days. I remember um, the rooms. They were, they were quite nice. Uh, they set it up almost like a hotel. Uh, but they understood the, the, the fragility of the people that were, were, were here as an intervention. And these rooms were suicide-proof. There was no way to, to do anything to yourself. So uh, I, I remember kind of checking, checking that out in my room. And then we had one-on-one therapy sessions and then there was group therapy. And this is where 
it was the first lesson in life where I, I knew I wasn't alone. The, the experience wasn't unique to me and that I started to let in that I am not, I'm, I'm not the problem. I'm, I'm not the cause of, um, seeming like I'm not enough. And it being a, uh, children's hospital and in this group we were about five or, or, or six of us and I was I was the oldest in the group there was I think 14 year old maybe 15 and and the one girl that stood out for me happened to be about eight years old and uh, I remember looking at her face and she was missing this she was very disfigured she was missing this very big chunk in her face like just ripped out so we all had an opportunity, you know, like you see in movies, group, hi, my name is Steph, or this is, you know, it was, it was, it was that first thing we were experiencing. And uh, she, she had her turn to speak and she shared the story of what happened to her face and what ended up happening is it was a family German shepherd and her father was, you know, uh, I guess on the, uh, the evil side, if you will, and decided to have a dog attack his daughter, which the result was the dog biting this big chunk out of her face. I struggled um, with hearing that because I felt shame. The immediate feeling I felt was shame uh, for, for, for being there and to think that my problems, I was like, fuck. Mine are nothing compared to hers. Look at look at her face. Look at what her dad did to her. And I couldn't imagine that whole experience. And I'm thinking, you know, you you Steph, you don't you, your stuff is menial. Like it's it's you know it's minimal. But that's where time with therapists made me realize that, you know, you don't need to wear your scarves visibly on the outside to be uh, riddled with them. And mine were all emotional and, and psychological. And uh, that, that is, that is crippling um, in, in its own way. It's, it's very difficult. So that was um, the, the kind of the, the, the launching point for me. So I, I spent the seven days there, um, I, I was able to finally, as we say in our world, Jen, unpack a lot of shit mm -hmm. and I unpacked and I unpacked and I unpacked and I was given the permission for the first time to unpack. And I think mm -hmm. that was a big um, moment for me, the, the permission to be, to be allowed without judgment, to be allowed in a safe environment to say, I'm fucked. I feel fucked. I'm lost. I don't know if life's worth living. And somebody needs to give me an example of something else for me to entertain going on with this thing called life. So um, follow visits were, were, were good. They, 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 they were great. It was kind of like anything else. You know, when you're exercising or trying to wear some new shoes, especially with, you know, you're trying to wear shoes that don't have pebbles in them, which is nice for a change when you're walking the path of life. Um, 
that helped me get a little bit more ground, uh, grounding and, and, and confidence that uh, I could break away little bit by little bit that my past doesn't define my future. And um, so that was, um, that, that, that was a, the, 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 the first step for me. And I think I mentioned it in my write-up, the book, I was 19 years old, I was working at Costco. Yeah. And I knew that I had so much more work to do. I, I was like, okay, just because you, this was your moment, you attempted suicide, you were in the hospital uh, for the first time, people were listening to you, sharing with you, giving you a different lens to look through. You saw that you weren't alone or other people, in fact, similar or potentially, you know, worse off, but you know, it's, it's all the same. I knew that it wasn't done. Like, just because mm -hmm. I packed my, my, my backpack doesn't mean that I packed it back quite right. Because let me tell you, it, it still wasn't packed right. <laughs> it, things weren't in order. I just kind of knew what was in my backpack. I, I, I shed light on them. I spotlighted them for the first time instead of pretending. It's like the engine check light's on. But if I put a, a, a piece of electrical tape on the engine check light, doesn't mean that it's the light out of mine and everything's fine. So... I remember in the book section, which was right at the front, the last aisle before the caches, there was the book Awaken the Giant Within by Anthony Robbins. So I hope Tony appreciates this plug. <laughs> so, um, I picked it up and I'm like, I know I have a giant in me. I know it's there. Always had this overwhelming sense of fulfilling a sense of contribution, doing purposeful work. But I didn't know that, that what that was and if, if I was worthy of experience and that kind of thing. So I, I chewed that book up several times and the receipt in it actually all the ink faded I taped it to the book and this where this was my first deep dive into self-talk and how pernicious or positive self-talk can be and as I was going through the introspective exercise I go how do you talk to yourself Steph I go well pretty shitty <laughs> if I talk to my friends like that I wouldn't have any mm -hmm. um, so that book really helped me uh, turn around kind of how I flexed my mind and, and how I engaged myself. Um, and, and again, to be random, I, 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 uh, I had a, a landlord here in Vancouver. We have since moved and they're great people. And, you know, we'd be invited upstairs for dinner and wine on occasion. And uh, the topic of, you know, suicide came up and I, I, I share freely. I, I believe People were examples for me that helped me, you know, get out of the darkness and find my way out of the woods. And I believe that, that I had, I, I've always wanted to pay that forward. And after I shared my stories to move this one that you're, you know, giving me an opportunity to do, you know, after he pulled it aside, we had our glasses of wine and he said, do your thoughts of suicide ever go away? And you know what? It's the first time somebody asked me that, Jen. And that's about six years ago, um, because this gentleman had a son who, you know, stood on a bridge and, and the media was there and traffic stopped like you would see on the news and was looking to do the same thing, was looking to achieve the same result that I was, just in a different fashion. And I guess he was never able to ask somebody else that question. And I openly looked at it and I said, it doesn't. I said, you need to, to manage it, to deal with it. Uh, you you uh, surround yourself with the right people in your life. You bring in the right tools. 
you know, picking up the wrong tool in a situation where you start being challenged with the same emotions based on maybe where you are in your life because, you know, it ebbs and it flows, you know, and I've still been in my troughs, you know, uh, over the years, but you just have a, a Swiss army knife instead of just having a hammer in the toolbox. And, uh, and I saw that that had meant a lot to him and me being willing to be that open to say, Hey, I wish I could tell you that your son doesn't think about it anymore because I can probably guarantee that he does. It's just, mm-hmm. he was willing to, uh, he really to go there. So anyway, um, I want to make a comment real quick on emotional abuse because when like that girl's face, which I can't imagine being bitten out by a German shepherd, but when you're hurt physically, if you punch me and I have a bruise, I can show you, he did this to me. This is what it looks like. I can watch it heal physically. And emotionally, we don't have that opportunity. We can't quantify how bad it was. There's no perspective for that. So it sits, I think, so much heavier. We don't get to watch it get better, watch it go away, see it diminish. You know, it's, I think the tools for dealing with emotional abuse are just so much different. And I remember as a kid thinking, just hit me and get it over with. So much easier if you just hit me and get it over with than that two hours of being berated. So People need to be kind to themselves when they're working through this, you two, ourselves included, that this is, it's not a destination, it's a journey, and it's not a point A to point B in a straight line. It's all over the place, and you need a Sherpa to help guide you sometimes, and there's no shame in that. I have two questions. One, I want to know about the picture that's on your profile. I have no idea how that. Topic. Oh my god. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so I do. I want to know about the picture that was taken because. Okay, and it's your profile picture, and then I want to end by connecting. I know you were a sports and physical fitness coach, and my gut would be, you knew that as a kid that was one of your only positive escapes. So you can help people reach higher levels because that's a positive escape. But I might be totally off. Um, you did that for a long time and then pivoting in this last 10 years and with the clothing, I want to tie that in to who, who is Steph and what do you want to, how do you want to pay this forward? So. Great tenfold question, Jen. I love that. Multifaceted <laughs> question. So I'm glad you asked about the picture because I've been dying to, 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 ah. to put it out there and, and to share it because, okay. and Hopefully I do a bang up job here. So that picture was taken in my previous role as a national director leading a sales team across all of Canada. And it was, and I'm, I had no problems going on record to say it, it was the worst professional experience of my life. Not, not for the team, the team that I worked closely with, that I was entrenched with, absolutely gem of people, amazing. It's just, I could not influence i was middle management so i was just a layer below the upper crust and i'm the guy who always fights for what right i've been my i've been the black sheep and i've been thinking of changing my profile picture to a black sheep and i'm quite contented being that guy because i believe in doing what's right and you know so that being said so that picture on my linkedin that i took was i came home from another day of achieving what i felt was absolutely nothing and as a leader, where I felt completely deflated, and I'm supposed to grease the skids, pick up the machete, 
and carve as clear a path as I can for the sales team that are responsible for. And it was just the apex of coming up empty-handed. And it ties into this guy has got to feel like he's making a difference. He's having a positive impact, you know, uh, on, on people and the work that I do. But it just wasn't happening. I was dying on the line. So I sat on my, my, my deck outside. I loosened my tie. And I decided to turn the phone toward me to look at the state of what I was wearing. And the look on my face in that picture, Jen, is one of, what the fuck, man? You can't control what you can't control. You can only have your hands on 10 and 2, uh, you know, what you, you know, do have control over, which was the everyday experience that I could give the team that I, I worked with and responsible for. The other side of that picture is, Sailor on, get over yourself and look softly in the mirror. Don't be so hard on yourself. So that's what that picture represents, Jen. And um, I appreciate you asking me because some people are like, oh, your, your picture is, is interesting. I go, yeah, well, I don't want to look, look like a psycho on, uh, on, on, on LinkedIn. I just want to look as authentic as I can be. And that was an authentic moment for me. It, so, it, it is. And it's, it's linked to the show notes also. So people can stare at you while they're, while we're having this conversation. <laughs> so let's finish up by talking about what you're doing today or what you've tried to do since the therapy in moving forward and helping other people? Um, so I, I know that I try to make this, this as succinct as possible is in this, it's been a long time since I've actually shared this. I'm coming off of a bit of a, a bit of a high here. And it's kind of like the dust is settling and this has been very good for me. And uh, you've played a part in that in telling my story is so going back to September, organization I was working with went through a uh, restructuring. So there, was, there were American-owned company, and it was flattened, and I was one of the casualties. And, you know, of course, the team was just devastated, and that's a nice compliment, you know, when you get that kind of outpouring. And, and I had been self-employed for the majority of my life um, through Hybrid Strong, and I lent my skill set and expertise as a strength and conditioning coach to other outfits like on my LinkedIn and North Shore Winter Club and whatnot. But I was still – my own brand. And that's, I, that was the, the best freedom I could ever have in expressing myself and being myself. Ties into, I'm unbridled, I'm unshackled. I can just be what I am. And when you come into organizations, you're having to walk that line, follow the status quo, and oftentimes not question the status quo. And that was kind of part of the friction that I was uh, living and, and going through. And then when the restructuring happened um, in, in September, and it, it was kind of like, here it is now just to kind of put in there quickly just for people listening to kind of like the, the, the challenges that continue to happen and where you bring out that Swiss army knife to, to pick yourself up and move forward was a week later, I developed some severe calf pain on the right side and hadn't been a strength and conditioning coach and understanding physiology. I knew it wasn't going to the gym because I hadn't been in the gym for a long time. And I looked at my wife and I said, I don't think this is good. So to make this very uh, quick, I went to the clinic, booked me for uh, an emergency blood test, emergency ultrasound, asked if I was having chest pain. And I said, yeah, well, I've always had chest pain because I'm just kind of high strong and, you know, uh, I, I just kind of a brain on fire. So, you know, I'm used to having kind of like some anxiety. And so sure enough, wife gets back from some errands and I look at her in the driveway and I said, uh, I think we got to move up this emergency ultrasound on the Catholic canal. So 
emergency, long story short, I did end up having a deep vein thrombosis, which is a blood clot. Um, I find out that, you know, I'm a classic overachiever, Jen, because what the specialist told me in my visit three weeks later versus what they told me in the hospital, what I thought was I had one blood clot in my lung based on my oh. CT scan, I ended up having five blood clots in my lung. And I remember going, I was looking at the specialist and going, well, you know, it's my MO. I just always swing for the fences. So I'm surprised. So having uh, lost the job, and then confronted with, you know, some serious uh, potential health risks, which I've moved through quite nicely now. Blood thinners are working, you know, as they should. Um, it was time for me to become on the cusp, and that had been incubating in my mind for a long time. I am at my freest. I am soaring when I can go back to that life mentoring, that coaching, like I've done for thousands of athletes and people coming back from double hip replacements. And there's nothing more rewarding than collaborating with people who want it. And it was just, this was my sign in bright neon lights. Say, dude, you've been talking about this forever. Should have got so off the pot, man. You're the nudge you're dying for. Yes, Jen. I love this. I love, I'm so in love with this. It means more than you know. All right. Now it all makes sense. So on the cusp, the nudge that we are dying for, that I asked you in the beginning. Sometimes we need a little two by four. So you got <laughs> it and now you can give it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Steph, thank you so much for being on and sharing your story and what a wild ride. Well, you know, um, I thank you for, uh, for, for listening. Um, been, like I said, it's been a long time since I've, I've shared it and uh, it was a good exercise for me in light of some recent uh, challenges in my life, but I just had to unpack again and you helped me do that today so you played it you played a role in that and uh, i thank you I, I sincerely and humbly thank you for that it was my pleasure thank you